There is a woman from Hahile. She is the granddaughter of a Negus of Oxum, and is rivaled in her beauty by none but the Queen of Sheba herself. The Amhara call her Esato, fire, and the Tigrais call her Yodit. For her evil deeds, we call her Gudit. This line comes from an unknown monastic text, compiled through the work of a later Ethiopian church historian named Tekla Hayamanot. It is one of the dozens of late Oxumite chronicles that mention a woman named Gudit. In the Oxumite records, she is something of a historical supervillain, a person so evil, so unquestionably terrible, that her name has become synonymous with cruelty and destruction. She is the unstoppable force who ended the millennium-old Oxumite Empire, the obliterator of churches and monasteries, slayer of monks and nuns, the tyrant queen who ruled the highlands with an iron fist. But this reputation aside, what do we actually know about the woman who formed the basis of this villainous character? Was the real Gudit really as evil as the monastic and oral records portray her? Or was there even a real Gudit at all? And finally, can her story help us piece together what really happened in late Oxum that caused the collapse of this ancient empire? Episode 29, Gudit, the woman who destroyed an empire. As with our last episode, there's a lot of uncertainty about the events that play out in today's story, largely stemming from the divergent claims about what happened before the story of Gudit begins. If you remember last episode, we had some conflicting claims about what happened in 10th century Oxum. Some of the stories claim that the Oxumite ruler, Abbasawedem, was a usurper who stole the crown from his brother, the rightful king Delnaud. Others claim that Delnaud was a child at the time, and that Abbasawedem was merely protecting his younger brother from being exploited by nobles in the church by acting as a regent until his brother grew older. Now, which version you believe vastly changes the story of how exactly Gudit's rise to power happened? Some accounts claim that Abbasawedem was the ruler of Oxum at the time, while others claim that it was Delnaud, who had grown up and was now old enough to rule Oxum, or had taken the crown back from his usurping brother. During my retelling of the story, I'm going to recite a version of events that I've put together by combining various historical and textual sources that I think form the most plausible story. But, yeah, this isn't gospel. And all of this is subject to my own interpretation of the numerous versions of the story. So don't take it too literally. Like with the last episode, just imagine in your head that I'm ending every sentence with probably or most likely. Every good villain needs a tragic backstory and Gudit certainly delivers in that respect. As stated in the manuscript at the start of this episode, Gudit was from the town of Hahaile, a relatively small town near modern-day Adwa in northern Ethiopia's Tigray region. Now, Gudit was almost certainly vaguely related to the Oxumite royal family, or at least claimed to be. Almost every traditional story of Gudit claims that she was either the granddaughter or niece or great-niece of some previous Negus of Oxum, usually a guy named Wedem Asfare one of the many uneventful Oxumite kings whose life we skipped over during the Oxumite Dark Ages episode. However, despite her royal descent, Gudit's childhood was not one of the luxury and extravagance you might expect. Rather than enjoying the power and opulence of a royal lifestyle, Gudit's branch of the royal family was passed over in the royal succession generations ago. While she still enjoyed the prestige of being the granddaughter of the former king of kings, her family enjoyed none of the material wealth that came with it. According to one retelling, Gudit's family eventually fell into such extreme poverty that Gudit, the daughter of an Oxumite prince, moved to the city of Oxum to make a living as a prostitute. 
Now, while her decision to prostitute herself was reluctant, Gurit, strangely enough, was incredibly successful at this new career. She was no ordinary woman of the night, but is better thought of as the equivalent of a prestigious escort. Her suitors often paid extravagant resources simply to have the chance to take her as a lover. One story that encapsulates how desirable Gurit was to the men of Oxum involves Gurit attracting the lust of a deacon of the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion. Now, the deacon of this church was no ordinary Oxumite priest. Gurit's move to Oxum took place around the same time as the reign of Degnajun, and while the Negus had done a lot to re-centralize authority, he had largely done this through controlling the institution of the church rather than actually weakening the institution's power. So, despite being effectively under the thumb of Degnagen at the time, the church was still incredibly wealthy and influential. Additionally, the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion was the single most important religious site in Tewahedo Christianity, and remains that way to this day, in fact, meaning that becoming the deacon of this church was one of the most prestigious positions within the Oxumite religious establishment. Despite this deacon's impressive status, however, Gudit was not impressed. The man had only been recently appointed to his position, and was incredibly young to have achieved such a prestigious status, only being 20 years of age. She firmly rejected the deacon, stating, I am a princess of the royal family. You are a clergyman. What makes you think you deserve to sleep with me? However, this forthright rejection did not dissuade the deacon. The church and the state are equal here. Tell me what you want, and I shall give it to you. Gudit considered the deacon's offer, but ultimately was still not interested. She coyly offered the deacon a sarcastic rejection. First of all, bring me a present. Deliver me a parasol made of gold and a pair of gilded sandals. Then you shall succeed. Now, this offer was clearly meant to be impossible. I mean, a parasol made of gold and gold shoes is kind of a ridiculous thing to ask for. But rather than being dissuaded by Gudit's sarcastic reply, the deacon took her offer quite literally. He returned to the church of Our Lady Mary of Zion and found a piece of gilded cloth. Now, this cloth was a staple part of the church. It had been given to the church as a gift by King Azana himself hundreds of years prior, and was one of the church's many precious relics. After all, Azana had long been considered a saint by the Tewahedo church, so this cloth wasn't only valuable for its material price, but it was also a holy relic, touched by Saint Azana himself. The deacon, overcome by his desire to impress Gudit, ripped off a chunk of the cloth and crafted it into a pair of sandals. The next day, he delivered the sandals to Gudit, promising to deliver an equally impressive parcel soon in the future. Gudit, impressed by the young deacon's tenacity and commitment, accepted the gift and waited to see if he would actually deliver on his promise of a gilded parasol as well. However, the next day, the inhabitants of Oxum went to attend regular church services, and when they noticed that a chunk of the relic was missing from the church, they went into an uproar. An angry mob began marauding around the city, demanding to know who had destroyed such a precious holy artifact. Suddenly, they noticed Gudit, with her gilded sandals, and the crowd surrounded her, they demanded to know what happened to the cloth, and why her sandals were so conspicuously similar in texture to the ruined relic. Gudit, probably internally panicking from the sudden materialization of an angry mob, explained that she had been given these sandals by the deacon as a gift in exchange for her affection. Suddenly, 
the mob's anger redirected towards the deacon. The mob gathered in the public square, and deliberated what they should do to punish the deacon for his sacrilegious actions. However, despite having really nothing to do with the destruction of the gold cloth, or even really being aware of where these golden sandals had come from, the crowd eventually turned the blame back to Gudin. The church records in which this story is detailed claims that the crowd rationalized that the deacon, only 20 years old, was simply caught up in love with Gudit, as young men are prone to do. How could he stop himself from being seduced by such a beautiful woman? I mean, he's too young to control himself. She basically made him do it, right? Now the crowd turned to Gudit. To punish her for her crime, the mob decided that they would do her best to tarnish Gudit's beauty. The crowd brandished knives and began to cut off and mutilate Gudit's right breast so she could not convince any men to commit such heinous crimes in the future. Then they banished her from Oxum, saying that if she ever returned to the city, she would be killed. Now, it's hard to say how true this story really is. Our source comes from a single church document, and one that is only rumored to be contemporaneous with Gudit's life compiled centuries after the fact. However, I don't see how you could listen to that story and not feel immense sympathy for Gudit. Not only was she, frankly, misogynistically found culpable for an action that she had no part in or even knowledge of, but her punishment was so unnecessarily cruel and vindictive. And while there's no material evidence to corroborate this story outside of this document and some oral traditions, it's difficult to dispel as inauthentic. I mean, this story is so peculiar. Remember, this story is relayed by a document created by the Oxumite Church and then compiled by a later Ethiopian church official an institution which has no incentive to depict Gudit sympathetically. But the document actually paints the church itself in an incredibly negative light. The true antagonist in this story is arguably the deacon, who is corrupt, lustful, and a destroyer of holy relics, while the citizens of Oxum are depicted uniformly as frankly kind of psychotic. Now, there are parts of this document that come later which are worth questioning, but overall, I have a hard time believing that this story doesn't have at least some elements of truth in it. After all, it's kind of doing the opposite of what you would expect church propaganda to do from this time. However, it's hard to say exactly what happened to Gudit after her exile. Sources vary immensely on where she went. Some claim she fled into Egypt, and then north into Syria, where she became deeply acquainted with a Syrian prince. Other sources claim she fled east to the city of Zela. However, the most popular stance among scholars of late Oxumite history seems to be that she fled somewhere to the west, possibly Semyon, the Jewish kingdom in the western mountains. There, she settled into a marriage with a local Jewish noble, and herself converted to the faith, though, as we'll see later, the authenticity of this conversion is questionable at best. And, given her recent experiences with the church, it's not hard to see why Gudit would want to convert away from the Christian faith. However, at this point, regardless of which version of events you believe, each version of Gudit's story makes sure to emphasize that she had no intention of moving on quietly with her life after how she had been treated at the hands of Oxum. Throughout her long period of exile, Gudit spent her time carefully plotting her revenge. Despite being forsaken and cast out, remember that Gudit had been a member of the royal family, and she still had a few loyal friends in high places in the Oxumite court. We'll be back after a quick break. 
How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. These friends acted as spies, supplying Gudit with intelligence about the goings-on within the Oxmite government. Gudit would wait until these spies informed her of the perfect time to take her revenge against the Oxmite church and state that had wronged her so dearly. Until then, however, she would patiently plan her strategy. Now, this is where it's worth mentioning a curious detail about Gudit. While Gudit mainly appears in the church records of Oxum, there's also several oral traditions from multiple different groups in the Ethiopian highlands that mention her existence, arguably. You see, Gudit was almost certainly not Gudit's real name. Rather, it's a nickname provided to her by her Oxumite enemies. The name is a clever portmanteau of Yodit, the Gez name for Judith, a Jewish woman in the Old Testament who slays an Assyrian general, and Gud, a Gez term meaning monster. However, while this nickname doesn't appear in any records outside of Oxumite church documents, many oral and written records mention the existence of female rulers whose biographies are conspicuously similar to Gudit. The city of Walale, just past the eastern fringes of Oxumite influence, for example, is confirmed by several documents and oral sources to be ruled by a Muslim woman named Tidin Mayalama, whose rule roughly aligns with the time frame of Gudit's wars against Aksum. In retellings of her time and power, Tedin Mayalama is depicted as a powerful warrior queen, who scores several major victories against the Aksumites in battle. Somali traditions tell of another contemporaneous queen, Arawelo, a queen of the Harla whose biography, like Gudit's, largely focuses on themes of sexual aversion and bodily mutilation. Arab records, on the other hand, reference a Bani al-Hamwiya, a pagan queen who purportedly ruled over the Sidama of southern Ethiopia contemporaneously with Gudit. So, what's going on here? The Horn of Africa hasn't had a single documented female monarch since, what, Izana's mother Sophia almost six centuries ago? But now there are supposedly four separate women governing different parts of East Africa at once. Well, to me, and many scholars who study the period, all of these women are, in fact, simply different names for the same woman. Arawelo, Tedenmayalama, and Bani Alhamuya are simply all different names for Gudit. However, while this hypothesis answers why there are so many female rulers during this period, it also kind of produces more questions than answers. While each of these women's biographies are similar in some regards, there are many areas where they differ significantly, with religion being the most obvious. I mean, two of them are Muslim, one is supposedly Jewish, and another is pagan. How can these four different women be the same person? And this is where I get to come up with my own personal hypothesis. While scholars have long believed that Gudit was the monarch of a single unified state, I disagree. Rather, I believe that Gudit did not lead a kingdom, but a federation of various different states which opposed Aksumite expansion. Gudit emerges in Aksumite history right after a period of rapid expansion by the Aksumite state under Negus Dagnajun, and I find it hard to believe that this expansion didn't at least provoke some concern among Aksum's neighbors. Additionally, I think she cleverly and carefully manipulated her religious identity to bolster her status among her followers in each constituent nation. 
Among the Muslim Hararis and Harla, she was a Muslim, while among the Beta Israelites of Semyon, she was Jewish, and among the Sidama, she was pagan. While this accounts for the difference in religion, however, it does not account for some of the other various departures in these women's biographies. Personally, I'd attribute that to general evolutions and oral tradition over time, but yeah, it's admittedly not perfect. Another competing theory assumes the correctness of the idea that Gudit fled to Syria and received the report of an Arab prince. However, I'm personally skeptical of this narrative, as the military expedition that the Arab prince undertakes to support Gudit is completely absent from Syrian records of the era. Now, while most scholars acknowledge the likelihood of Gudit's multi-religious political maneuvering, they are less certain about the power structure behind Gudit's rule more generally. A few scholars' writings conform with my idea of a federation, while others depict her as more of a traditional monarch, while others depict her as more of a leader of a less organized rebel faction. So, how about you let these questions stew around in your brain for a little bit, while I read a message from this episode's sponsor. Before we continue with the story, I'd like to take a quick break to thank this episode's sponsor. Do you love to read as much as I do? If so, check out the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where, with an informal, conversational, and engaging manner, Cindy, the podcast host, routinely gets authors to open up about what's important to them, giving busy readers the backstory to their favorite, or as of yet undiscovered, books. She and her guests talk about books spoiler-free, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then they delve into things that you won't hear about elsewhere, like the importance of cover design, why an author included various aspects of their story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform, including the one you're listening on right now, and learn more about it from Cindy's website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Now, regardless of how you perceive Gudit as building her political power, an opportunity opened for Gudit to strike at Oxum when Degnajan died. As we discussed last episode, depending on how you perceive the historical records and oral traditions surrounding Oxum at the time, the empire was marred by political conflict either between the brothers Ambasawedem and Del Naud, or between Ambasawedem and the church establishment. But regardless of which version you believe, the destabilizing effect of this conflict was obvious, and Gudit planned to take advantage. Depending on which version of the story you believe, Gudit's army was either supplemented by the army of her Syrian lover, or by an army of Arab mercenaries, in addition to her East African forces. As Gudit's assembled armies marched into the Oxumite realm, the empire of Oxum ended not with a whimper, but with a bang. The remaining armies of Oxum were no match for Gudit's forces. Their resources had been exhausted from the numerous earlier campaigns of Degnajan, while these campaigns also chipped away at their numbers, as did fighting off numerous pretenders throughout the last decades. So Ambasawedem's forces were in no way capable of stopping the invaders. And, again, with the disclaimer that this detail changes from version to version of the story, apparently Delnaud had himself been responsible for one of these rebellions. However, even though he stopped fighting his brother when he needed to put up a united front against Gudit, his efforts still proved incapable of stopping her march into the Empire. Gudit, who had been so personally violated and abused by the Oxumites, was absolutely unremorseful in her revenge. And here is where we see the character of the ultimate villain in Oxumite history truly emerge. By far, Gudit's invasion was the single most destructive war in Oxumite history. She was ruthless throughout her campaign, burning the villages of Oxum's farmers while sacking the luxurious manors of the Empire's elites with impunity. However, while destruction was widespread in general, 
It seems that Gudit maintained an extra intense malice for structures associated with the church in particular. During the later episodes of this podcast, I'm sure you've noticed my constant allusions to the poor state of Oxumite historical records after the rule of Arma. Well, part of the blame for the lack of records can be placed on Gudit herself. Monasteries and churches throughout the empire were thoroughly razed, as were the valuable ecclesiastical manuscripts within. Much of the Oxumite historical record burned in the fires of Gudit's vengeful destruction. In fact, if you travel to East Africa today and visit just about any monastery that dates back to the Oxumite period, it's almost guaranteed that you'll find some scorch mark or other sign of destruction that the monks of the monastery attribute to Gudit. However, her greatest act of vengeance was finally enacted when her army captured the city of Oxum. There, Gudit turned the church of Our Lady Mary of Zion, the institution which had been so central to her abuse at the ends of the Oxumites, into a pyre of flames. The most important site in Tewahedo Christianity, built by Azana himself and long the center of the Oxumite Empire's faith, was reduced to a pile of ash. Remember, the city of Oxum had long been a city in decline in terms of its economic and political importance, but had still been kept relevant by the city's spiritual significance. Oxum's spiritual significance was now incinerated by Gudit, as the church that once attracted pilgrims from across East Africa saw its insides burned before it was demolished brick by brick. Finally, Gudit completed her destruction of the Oxumite Empire with the final elimination of the imperial family. Her army tracked down and killed every male member of the royal family line, ensuring that the Oxumite dynasty would never recover. Even Ambasawedem himself was killed by this rampage. With this final elimination of the Oxumite ruling family, Gudit ensured that the Oxumite empire could never recover. Oxum, as a political entity and as a city, had been terminated fully after centuries of dominance. Or has it? You see, while pretty much all of the Oxumite royal line is now destroyed, there is at least one remaining member of the Oxumite royal family alive, Gudit herself. And while you might expect that the chaotic and destructive nature of Gudit's rule would result in a short reign, this is not exactly the case. You see, Gudit would preside over the remains of the Oxumite Empire for about four decades, an incredibly long period when you consider the political instability that came with her ascent to power. Whether this long rule was a result of the reassertion of internal stability, or ruthless suppression of opposition, or any sort of combination of the two, the length of her reign is impressive nonetheless, considering the situation she created for herself. Unfortunately, the details of what Gudit's reign looked like after her conquest of Oxum are still to this day largely a mystery. However, the narratives surrounding some of the figures often associated with Gudit, such as the Harlequin Arawelo, may give us some hints. Traditional accounts of Arawelo's reign detail a commitment to a strange matrilineal inheritance system, as well as the institution of new, uh, sexually explicit forms of criminal punishment. However, these practices are unmentioned in any of the church documents describing Gudit's biography. And if you decide to look up the practices introduced by Arawelo, then I have a hard time believing that they would go unmentioned. Additionally, what little evidence we have that confirms the historicity of her reign from outside mostly consists of mundane diplomatic pleasantries and gifts sent to foreign leaders. The record of these gifts document no unusual government practices or rebellions happening during Gudit's time on the throne. While it's hard to offer a description of what happened during Gudit's reign after her conquest, what little information we do have seems to imply that, despite the bombastic and destructive way she came to power, Gudit's reign was surprisingly mundane and even peaceful. 
and after four decades of rule, Gudit passed away, and almost immediately her confederation began to disintegrate. Gudit's death created a power vacuum throughout the Ethiopian highlands. In the south, much of the Amhara-speaking territory of the empire, as well as the kingdom of Harla, was seized by the emir of Walale. With this new territory under his control, the emir of Walale proclaimed himself the Sultan of Showa, after one of the many regions absorbed in this conquest. The Sultanate of Showa would remain the most powerful Muslim kingdom in Ethiopia for the next century. In the west, the kingdom of Semien became the primary regional power. However, the northern region, the heart of the Aksumite Empire, would come under the control of an aging general who supposedly had fought alongside Abbas Awedem during his failed attempt to defend against Gudit's invasion. This general, an Aga noble named Maratakla Haimanot, not to be confused with the similarly named church historian, initiated the Zagwe dynasty, a Christian empire which would rule the region that once comprised the northern Aksumite Empire. Though, some scholars have questioned his identity of an Aksumite general, and instead claim that he's actually a descendant of Gudit herself, and that his identification as an Aksumite general was propaganda to legitimize his rule. However, if you were paying close attention to my phrasing when I talked about the end of the Aksumite dynasty, you may have noticed that I said at least one member of the Aksumite royal family survived Gudit's purge. After all, there has been one significant member of the royal family whose presence has been largely absent throughout this episode. Where has Delnaud been, the younger brother of Ambassa Wedem? Well, the answer to that question is a surprisingly controversial one. To mainstream historians, the answer is that, well, he was dead, just like the rest of the Aksumite royal family. If Ambassa Wedem hadn't already killed him, then Gudit most certainly did when she tracked down and eliminated the royal line. However, if you believe the claims of the later Solomonic dynasty and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, then nothing could be further from the truth. According to this view, Delnaud, in fact, not only survived the end of the Aksumite Empire, but thrived. Whether as a child or an adult, Delnaud, the last link to the Aksumite royal dynasty, would flee into the Amhara region, and would even have children of his own. From this family, eventually an Amhara nobleman named Yakuno Amlak would be born, a nobleman who would successfully challenge the Zagwe dynasty for rule over the Ethiopian highlands. After overthrowing the Zagwe dynasty, Amlak would claim not only descent from the biblical King Solomon, but would claim that his ancestry contained just about every single Negusa Negas we've talked about on the show, from Zahakla to Gadarat to Azana to Caleb to Degneja. And, using this purported genealogy, Amlak claimed to be the rightful inheritor of the Aksumite Empire. Now, of course, that's if you don't believe the majority of the historical scholarly community which sees Yakuno Amlak as merely a rebellious noble who made up his alleged Aksumite lineage to legitimize his seizure of government. But, you know what? Rather than debating the merits of this claim, I prefer to think about how amazing the Aksumite Empire was, that more than a millennium after its collapse, there are still people debating over who can rightfully claim its legacy to this day. And, just like that, we've concluded our series on Aksum. Well, mostly. I want to do one more episode before we end things here. Partially because episode 29 is a weird number to end on, but partially because I don't want to leave anyone in the audience feeling like their questions about Oxum went unanswered by this series. That's why, in two weeks, I'll conclude our season on Oxum with a general Q&A regarding any final questions about the Empire, personal thoughts on the matter, or just anything you feel like saying as long as it's related to Oxum or Ancient East Africa. 
So, if you're listening to this episode during the two weeks after its release, that's from July 19th until August 2nd, 2021, then please send an email to historyofafricapodcast at gmail.com with your questions or comments. Additionally, next week we'll finally formally announce what season three of the show will be about. And trust me when I say that I think you guys will like it. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com, by giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode, like all others, is brought to you by our patrons. Raul Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Aaron L., and Kevin Johnson, among others. Thank you for helping to make the show happen.